This morning we will be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. You can find our passage beginning in verse 47 on page 882 in the Pew Bible. We'll be reading verses 47 through 62. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll bring the text up on the screen as well. Hear the word of the Lord. While Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw that what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. He touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter Peter sat down among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also is with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows, Today you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. You can find our outline today on the back of the uh, bulletin there, and but uh, there was, in in the uh, English Reformation, There's a man named William Tyndale, and William Tyndale was responsible for translating uh, the the Word of God into English and uh, and publishing those Bibles. And uh, for those, uh, particularly the Roman Catholics, who uh, thought that was uh, blasphemy, uh, he was, uh, they were not a fan of his, uh, and he actually even declared to a Roman Catholic priest who had opposed him at a dinner, uh, he famously said, uh, that when, uh, by the time he was done, the average plowboy uh, would know more than the Pope himself about the scriptures. Uh, sometime later, William was being hunted down by the Catholic authorities who wanted to put him to death, and William left his, the safe house uh, with someone he thought was his friend, uh, only to have his friend lead him right into the hands of the authorities who imprisoned him, condemned him, and eventually executed him. And we see in, the, in William Tyndale's story not only the nobility of his sacrifice and martyrdom, but also how evil and treacherous men can be. 
Because mankind is not merely imperfect, but mankind, according to the scriptures, is sinful. And betrayal, in particular, is a deep wound because betrayal cannot be inflicted by anybody. Some random stranger cannot come up and betray you. Betrayal can only come from one who has earned our trust in some form or fashion, someone who's become near us and even dear to us. I'm certain you know from your own experience what it means to be betrayed. But do you know that God knows what it means to be betrayed? Even humanity itself, made in the image of God, but denies that image. Mankind, who has every obligation to honor God and to worship Him, goes our own way into death and destruction. But wonderfully, the Scriptures tell us that God is gracious. He redeems sinners by His mercy in the gospel. Uh, By faith, we are made new in Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we rightly celebrate. Yet... We still battle against that remaining corruption we call the flesh. And we must confess that even in the church, that we at times, in varying degrees, turn against Jesus and his commands and his word when we sin. And so how does Jesus address betrayals? And how does he address denials? especially when they come from his own disciples. Well, this morning we're going to see that Jesus addresses these first by revealing that he is always in control. He's always in control. And secondly, that Jesus is faithful uh, even when we are not. So I apologize. I don't actually have the the, the slides today for, for each of the points, but you've got the outline on the back of the bulletin there. So verses 47 through 53 We see that Jesus reveals he is always in control. Jesus reveals he is always in control. Uh, And and he does so in three ways. First, Jesus confronts his betrayer in verses 47 to 48. Uh, Suddenly, in the place of prayer, uh, Jesus and the rest of the disciples are approached by a crowd led by Judas. And uh, there's a very uh, negative kind of biting tone to Luke's writing as he describes uh, the, the man called Judas, one of the twelve. It highlights the sinister and despicable nature of what Judas is doing. Uh, even Jesus stops. You notice that Judas attempts to uh, betray Jesus with a kiss, but we're, we are not told that he succeeded. We are told that Jesus apparently intervened and wouldn't even, that seems, would not even allow him to complete his act of betrayal. Because he asked him effectively, would he really be so shameless, so wicked, so as to betray the Son of Man with that which was meant to be a sign of honor, affection, friendship, and esteem. Matthew Henry writes of this pain, the painfully scandalous nature of Judas's act by saying, Must he be betrayed with a kiss? Must the badge of friendship be the instrument 
of treachery. And so we must be very clear here on the unique nature of the heinousness of Judas's treachery. You know, Brutus may betray Caesar. Your friend or loved one may betray you. But it doesn't compare to the betrayal experienced by the Son of Man. The Christ, the Messiah, the very Son of God, the one chosen and beloved before the foundation of the world, the innocent and pure, glorious and lovely Jesus Christ. It doesn't compare. Whatever betrayals you and I have experienced. However, this does not mean to say, we're not saying that we who profess the name of Christ for ourselves, who take upon ourselves the name of Christian, that we don't perform our own acts of treachery against the gospel of grace when we sin against the Lord, when we intentionally do what we know is wrong, what is expressly forbidden by the Lord. There are those in the church who uh, profess to know the gospel but do not actually know. They take the name of Christ to them. They call themselves Christians, but it's only a superficial spirituality. Uh, and, they, and you know it because they declare themselves to be clean and acceptable in the sight of God, uh, although they also know that they, have, uh, that they have greatly sinned against the word of God. And they have no regard for it. They have no concern or care for obedience to the Lord. And there are genuine believers, church officers, pastors, who though we have been called to holiness because our God is holy, we walk in the ways of the world and its values. We give into temptation when it presents itself, in part because we don't do what Jesus told us to do, to pray that we would not enter temptation. And honestly, in part because we just wanted to do it. We sin against God's command. We sin against God's mercy. Matthew Henry writes, Many instances there are of Christ being betrayed with a kiss by those who under the form of godliness fight against the power of it. As much as we may hate to admit it, there's a little bit of Judas in each of us. And Je but Jesus goes on and he clarifies the conflict in verses 49 to 51. Some of the disciples want to know, is it now to unleash the power of our two swords against the crowd? One of them doesn't even wait for a response. John, the Gospel of John, tells us it was Peter. And you're like, of course it was Peter. He reaches out, he swings the sword and strikes the ear of the servant of the high priest. Brave and foolish to be sure, but also proving that Peter doesn't understand what Jesus has been telling him. Jesus says something similar to what he had said earlier about their earlier discussion about swords. He says, no more. Enough of this. This is not the way of the Messiah. This is not what I've come to do. And he heals the servants here immediately. I want you to think about that for a moment because Jesus stops the sword play, but at the same time demonstrates his power before the crowd. 
before the elders, before, uh, before the, the, the high priest representatives, before all of them, and they are unchanged. Such is the power and the control of the Son of God in this moment that he could overpower everyone in an instant. But also such is the hearts of men, the darkness therein, that they could see the miracle right before their very eyes, and it does not lead them to repentance. In this moment, Jesus confirms that he is not some political or religious revolutionary uh, bent on a violent uprising. The conflict, Jesus' engagement is one that is ultimately spiritual in nature, although it certainly has political uh, or physical ramifications. Uh, and, and, and so one must also wonder, though, at this moment, what was it like to be the servant of the high priest? The guy who got healed. He had come, no doubt, to assist in the arrest of this political troublemaker and the enemy of God. And then he's almost killed. And then the man he came to arrest and to see was put to death, heals him. I wonder if he wept like Peter does at the end of his denials. I wonder if at Christ's resurrection he believed and his heart was filled with hope and eternal life. We know that many are they who have approached Christ with hearts of anger and bitterness and hatred only to be touched by the Son of God and healed. But Jesus clarifies the conflict of what's going on here. It will not be won by a couple of sword-wielding disciples. And then, and, and then third, uh, he also uh, calls out the cowardly darkness of men that is on display here in verses 52 to 53. Jesus turns to the Jewish leaders in the crowd and he calls them out. They, they have come out in force, armed as though they were arresting a robber or a violent criminal. Why are they doing this at night rather than the day? At nighttime is when the robbers and the violent criminals were at work. And, and, and why, don't, why didn't you come after me in any of the days where I was teaching out in the public? What, what's going on? And he knows the answer. We know the answer. Luke has told us the answer multiple times. They were afraid of the people. They were cowards. You know, it's like they, the best business practice is when to, when to fire someone, right, uh, is Friday afternoon, right? Whenever there's some ugly business that needs to be released from, like, the White House, when is it? Friday afternoon. Right When no one's noticing, we just don't really want to deal with this failure that we have to admit. So we're going to put it when nobody wants to pay attention to it. Right? And these, these men have shown up at night because they want to take Jesus when, because they are cowards. And Jesus shames them for their cowardice. But he acknowledges that they are allowed to do what they're going to do because it is their hour and the power of darkness. That is their interests in that moment line up with the interests of the devil. And by the way, if your interests line up with the devil, you're in a bad place. And so they, but they will be allowed to do what they do because, uh, because they desire to do ultimately what is in accordance with God's plan, which is the crushing 
of the suffering servant, as described in Isaiah 53. The condemnation and the murder of the Christ. In each of the instances here that we've talked about, we are shown that Jesus is in complete control. He had predicted Judas's betrayal. He stopped any thought of violent uprising. And the hour of darkness only prevailed, as we just said, because it was on schedule in God's plan of redemption. And this should be of great comfort for us as Christians. For we may feel out of control and terrified or burdened by evil in our lives, uh, pressing in on us. Christ is never out of control. Even here at, 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 at his own betrayal and arrest, Christ has complete mastery over all. And if he has it there in the moment of his greatest human weakness, does he, does he lack control in your life today? Absolutely not. He has complete mastery over your life. And of the hardships and the sufferings and the afflictions that you may be going through. And once it's that's very encouraging. Now you might say that's a bit of a cold comfort because what you're saying is, is that it means I'm open to suffering. I'm open to affliction, to experience that in my life. But unfortunately, all I, have to t- uh, all I have to tell you is that welcome to being a Christian. This isn't new. This is what Jesus has been saying the whole time. When he says take up your cross daily, it's, you're not going to the spa. Pain, affliction, hardship, sorrow. It is by tribulation, he says, we enter into the kingdom of God. Let us cry out to God in our suffering and when we're hurt and we're wounded, when we're, when we're physically suffering, when we're emotionally reeling because of betrayal and pain or, or, or we're mired down with our own sinfulness and, and, and failure. Let us cry out to God. But let's cry out to him because we know he's in control. Because he know, we know that he hears us. And that he will bring us through. So Christ is in control always. And secondly, Christ is faithful even when we are faithless. Christ is faithful even when we are faithless. In verses 54 to 62, we see this. And really just highlighting two things here in these verses. The first is Peter's absolute failure. We knew it was coming. Jesus said it was coming. We know the story. Peter denies Christ. Peter was not allowed to pursue the violent glory that he thought was necessary through the, through the sword. Jesus had stayed his hand, and now Peter doesn't know what to do. He didn't know what's going on. But the time that Jesus had warned him about, the sifting of Peter's soul is upon him, and he's going to fail. He fails. He fails not just once, twice, three times before the rooster crows. His clothes and his accent probably gave him away to the, to the locals there in Jerusalem. It's kind of like, even though I've lived here for 11 years, I still get, you're not from around here, are you? I'm like, what? I say y'all. I don't understand. So...
At first, the, the accusation starts small with a lowly servant girl, maybe, maybe who's probably ser- serving at the door. But they eventually pile up and they crescendo. And Peter does the very thing that he declared was impossible. The thing that could not be done. Prison and death, he said, before I would deny you. The good Bishop Ryle reminds us how small and gradual are the steps by which men may go down to great sins. We may stand here in this hour and declare our absolute, unfeigned allegiance to Jesus Christ, but if we are not on our guard, if we do not pray that we would not enter into temptation, if we abandon the fellowship of believers, if we starve ourselves of of the word of God, then we are opening ourselves up to all manner of sins. There's no limit to it. We are not immune to the temptations of the flesh, the world, and the devil. And, we need, and, we be, and, and if we act like we are, Peter warns us that there's somebody prowling around and he's hungry. Peter had not taken Jesus seriously at his word. And now the word of Christ had proven true in the most painful of ways. Peter has utterly failed as a disciple of Christ. And you may know that experience. Where you're not guilty of just, you know, it's, it's not just you're guilty of not reading your Bible enough, you know, just not, not praying enough. The, the, the sins we're allowed to admit out, out loud to everybody. But when we're guilty of idolatrous, adulterous, greedy sins and unbelief, even unto denying the Lord who bought us, perhaps this gives us new, gives us new understanding of Peter. When he writes in 1 Peter 5, describing Satan as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, he's speaking not hypothetically about a guy he heard about somewhere. He's speaking as one from deep personal experience, one who can show you the marks, the claws, and the teeth of the devil as he sifted his soul and he failed. Be careful, Christian. He is looking for you too. And the devil has no mercy to give. In the midst of Peter's failure, though, we observe something amazing, something wondrous. And that is what I call Christ's gracious look in verses 61 and 62. Right as Peter fails, Just imagine your Peter, right as he fails. The very moment that that Jesus' prophecy comes true and Peter's nightmare is realized, he looks up and finds himself with eyes locked with Jesus. How cutting to his heart, to his very soul, the eyes of the Lord that he had just denied as he remembered his words 
and tears filled his eyes and he ran out to weep bitterly. What have I done? How can God forgive me? The picture of biblical blessing in the Bible is for the Lord to look upon us and smile. What happens when he looks upon us in our shame, in our sin? When we are in the midst of our sinful act and the eyes of faith meet the gaze of our Savior. And we cover our mouths in horror and the shame and the guilt of our sin begins to weigh in upon us and we say, what have I done? How can God forgive me? And Christ's look cuts Peter to his heart. It is a convicting look that shakes him to his very core, but it is a beautiful look. It is, I submit to you, it is a gracious look from the Savior because for his gaze upon his sinful, failing disciple, what does it do? It awakens his conscience. It makes him aware of his guilt and his, his, it instills a godly remorse that leads him to weep and puts him on the path of repentance and restoration. Is this not only the fulfillment of Christ's prophecy, but the fulfillment, the beginning of the fulfillment of Christ's prayer for Peter, where he says, the devil has demanded to sift your soul like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, after you deny me and you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He knew Peter was going to deny him. But he knew Peter would repent. And he prayed for him. Godly sorrow for his sin is the beginning of Peter's turn. As Christians, you and I need to know that our Savior doesn't look upon our sin. He doesn't look at us in our sin in order to crush us. But to excite our love for God. To, ex to, to, to stir our desire for holiness and our hatred of sin and wickedness, and to instill that longing for cleansing and mercy. I will tell you, apostates don't want those things. They don't care. The look of Christ communicates his desire, his willingness to receive not only Peter, but us. His cross and his resurrection are the very power of salvation and the spirit, his seal of love upon us. J.C. Ryle writes, he says, no man need despair, however far he may fallen, if he will only repent and turn to Christ. If the heart of Jesus was so gracious when he was a prisoner in the judgment hall, well, he, we surely need not think he is less gracious now that he sits in glory at the right hand of God.
reminds me of an, an addiction counselor who uh, caught her son on the counter. He was obsessed with the kitchen knives, and so she was freaking her out. <laughs> so he's real young, and so he, he was just amazed that he just loved sharp things. And she's like, ah, it's freaking me out, my young son. And so she put him on top of the fridge. And, of course, she walks, in the, walks into the kitchen, and, of course, he's standing on the counter with, like, the biggest knife out going, oh, look at that. It's amazing. And, and she goes, God's watching you, right? <laughs> the, the, the phrase that parents have said, told their children. And he suddenly got really alarmed and was, went, why is he watching me? And it took her back for a moment. She was like, why is he watching me? Now, indeed, for, for the wicked, for those who, who uh, do not know Christ, who refuse to submit themselves to his mercy to receive the gospel, God's watchful gaze will result in final judgment, ultimate judgment. But that's not why Christ looks upon you. Or me. He looks upon us to convict us of sin, to be sure. To instill that godly sorrow, absolutely. But he does so to win us, to restore us, to love us. Even if we can't keep his gaze. So I don't know where you're all at today, but I know some of you are hurting. I know some of you are hurting because of the sin and the treachery of others in your life. That, you, that some of you are hurting because of your own sinful failures. As, as you stand before the gaze of the Lord and they just call to mind. And, and, and you say with the psalmist, I'm, I'm, my sin is drowning me. I'm in over my head. You need to understand that godly sorrow for sin is not the experience of apostates and the wicked, but of the Lord's people, of his disciples. And, but don't, you can't just stay there, though. Don't just stay there morrowed in sorrow and, and shame. That's, that's not where the Lord wants us to stay. You're there for a moment, but you move forward. Because if you are burdened with sorrows for sin, if you're burdened with hurtful afflictions that have been brought down upon you, then the answer is simple. Take up your hymnal and sing with your brothers and sisters who suffer along with you. Sing with your very soul. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wondrous face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can fail as your people. We do daily. And we fail, and we fail bad. We fail like Peter. We thank you, Lord, that you do not cast us out but that you look upon us, that your son looks upon us. That you restore us. That you give us grace. You give us mercy, not just when we came to faith, but 
today and tomorrow and every day until we come into that glorious moment, that beatific vision where we will see you face to face and there will be no shame. We will not cast our eyes away, but we will worship in glory and joy forever. But until that day, may we not listen to the lies of the flesh and the world and the evil one that say that you hate us, that you that if we fail, if one misstep, one big mistake, one great sin, and that we're out and you're done with us. But may daily may you remind us of your love, of your plan of redemption, of your calling us from eternity, from eternity past, from before the foundation of the world, that from the power of the cross and the resurrection that overcomes our sins, that overcomes our afflictions, that Paul says are not even worth comparing to the glories that await us in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in, that await us in the kingdom, Father. May you remind us daily of those promises that you may constantly lift our eyes to the heavens, that we may rejoice even in our sorrows. Sorrowful, but always rejoicing. And may we celebrate the grace and goodness that we have in such a Savior that redeems and uses and works through flawed and flailing about disciples as we are. And Lord, may we not use your mercy as an excuse to sin, but may we not despair when we fall short of the glory of God. May we always look to your blessed Son in the gospel and repent and believe every day, every moment until that day, when we will believe no more because we will see not with eyes of faith, but with eyes of glorified bodies in the glorious heavens and the glorious earth that is to come. We pray all of this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.